In 1998, Mari Povich was at a crossroads, as uh, were all of the other daytime TV talk show hosts uh, that we know today, like Ricky Lake and, and Jenny Jones and all those people. And he had to decide if he was going to go the Oprah Winfrey route and stay classy and positive and encouraging and even like somewhat spiritual, or if he was going to go the Jerry Springer route and tap into the depravity of his audience. Because in, 19, in the mid-1990s, there was this weird phenomenon that was taking place. Talk show hosts were usually focused on social issues and trying to build up society and tackle you know, the problems of the day and, and give some guidance. But then this guy, Jerry Springer, came along and blew up everything. And so Mari had to decide, which one am I going to go? Which route am I going to take? And unfortunately for all of us, he chose the latter. He rebranded himself and went from the Mari Povich show to just Mari. And he came up with the idea of doing DNA paternity tests live on his show. Some of you, I can tell, are smiling at me through your masks. Some of you have no idea who Mari is, and that's okay. Others of you are like, why in the world are you talking about Mari? <laughs> but you see, he didn't earn his fame and his fortune because of his talent. He earned them because he decided to exploit one of the most tragic aspects of our society. The fact that there are literally thousands of kids around our country who have no idea who their father is. Now DNA paternity tests are must-see TV. And so much so that during sweeps months, which are the, the seasons when TV shows earn, earn their advertising, during sweeps months now, all these shows do are DNA paternity tests because they get better ratings than anything else. Every single day, to this day, at least one talk show host around the country will do a DNA paternity test. And Mari, who has been nicknamed the daddy of the DNA test, literally gets a hundred calls every single week from people wanting to identify who their father is. I was thinking about these shows this past week. So full disclosure, I have seen Mari. Um, I was homeschooled in the 90s, uh, which meant I was at home during the day. And uh, much to my mother's like horror, I did not love Jesus, and I did not obey her. And so every time I had a chance, I was sneaking around watching TV, and what was on? It was Mari. So I know all about Mari, okay? And I was thinking about Mari this past week because in a lot of ways, the text that we're going to read today reads like an episode of Mari. It reads like an episode of who is your father, it's essentially a paternity test for the people of Israel. And Mari's set up in like three uh, almost chapters. Someone is like absolutely convinced that they know who the father is in chapter one. Chapter two, this pseudo father, maybe possible father comes out and says, no, absolutely not. And then in chapter three, evidence is given. Science is given to show who the real father actually is. And that's honestly what our passage reads like today. See, Jesus is talking to a group of Jews who are absolutely convinced that they know who their father is. They are convinced that it's Abraham, the chosen man of God, the father of blessing, the, the patriarch of their great nation. He is their dad, so to speak, or their great, 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 great grandfather. But not only that, they're convinced that because of their relationship to Abraham, 
that God is actually their father as well. They know who their father is. And yet, in this critical conversation, Jesus is going to come up with some evidence and show them that it's actually not true. Only this evidence isn't a DNA test. It's something much deeper than that. But it's going to reveal that they don't really know who their father is. This is so important for us today. Because you and I are in great danger of being just like that group of people. Convinced that we know who our father is. When all the while, the evidence might actually reveal the complete opposite. And that's what Jesus is going to get to the bottom of today. Let's look at the text together. John 8, starting in verse 39. This group of Jews answers him, Abraham is our dad. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children... You would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said, and we are not born of sexual immorality, which they're trying to now put his father on on trial. Because remember, Mary was a virgin. She, She was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so the scandal around Jesus was that he actually didn't know who his dad was. Remember that? That's what they're trying to do here. We know who our father is. You don't know who yours is. You were born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you, not, you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. Now this is absolutely shocking from Jesus. And since he can't lie... Since he only tells the truth, he never uses exaggeration, he never uses hyperbole, this should absolutely terrify us. This one's right up there with Matthew 7, the the end of Matthew 7, that famous passage where Jesus says all of these people are going to stand before him one day at the judgment and they're going to plead with him about how they did all of these works in his name and they cast out all of these demons in his name and did all of these miracles in his name and he's going to say, get out of my presence, I never knew you. That's a terrifying passage. This one is that, like, and then some. Not only did he not ever know this group of people, but They belonged to his enemy. They were sons of the devil. This is shocking. It should absolutely terrify us because he's not just saying that it is possible to be on this middle ground with him. No, there are only two types of people in the world. There are sons of God and then there are sons of the enemy, the devil. Guys, if that doesn't jar us today, 
If that doesn't shock us, if that doesn't offend us, if that doesn't cause us to get a little bit uneasy in our seats and wake us up a little bit, nothing else will. Do you know who your father is? Is the most important question that you and I have to answer today. Do you know who your father is? Eternal life, life to the fullest, both now and forevermore, hinge on that question. Jesus is going to give us two pieces of evidence or two identifying markers to help us figure out where our sonship actually lies. And that's what we're going to dive into today. So if you're taking notes, uh, two markers to show us where our sonship lies. First, we do what our fathers do. This past week, I saw a series of commercials I don't know if you've seen these yet. I was showing them to Caleb. He'd never seen them. Caroline actually showed them to me. But it's these uh, commercials advertising home insurance to people who are, are buying a house for the first time and who are subsequently becoming like their parents without realizing it or wanting it. it they're absolutely hilarious. They're doing things like putting way too many pillows on the couch so that there's no room to sit on. Any of you women out there want to ad admit to doing that? If Caroline were here, I'd be totally giving her a hard time right now because she does this. Uh, one guy is sitting in, a, in an armchair reading a book about submarines. and The guy comes up to him, Dr. Rick, and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm reading a book about submarines. He's like, who else does that? And he's like, my dad. And he puts the book down, totally dejected because he's becoming like his dad. Now, other people are, are helping the handyman, even when the handyman didn't ask for help. And there are these really funny commercials, and I, I, I couldn't help but laugh. The tagline is, we can't help you from becoming your parents, but we can save you a ton of money on home insurance when you bundle. Like, it's brilliant. It's brilliant because we all do this. We're all becoming just like our parents. We all do a lot of the stuff that they did. We say a lot of the stuff they said. For example, like with my own dad, the older I get, the more I realize I am my father's son because of what I do. One of the things that I do after a big meal is I lean back in my chair. I take a deep sigh. I slap my belly and I say, well, that was good. And that's my way of saying dinner's over. And, and I don't even realize it. It's just totally subconscious. But my dad does that. And I totally got it from him. I had no idea. My, my dad, one of the things he used to say to us all the time, every single morning when he was leaving for work and when we were leaving for school, he would say, have a good and godly day. For of what benefit is a good day if it is not godly? <laughs> we used to just like roll our eyes. He'd be like, all right, dad, you too. Like, you know, see you later. And now I literally say this to my kids when I'm leaving, have a good and godly day for a what? And I see them, they're like, what? <laughs> what does that even mean? And we obviously talk about it. As one of my favorite songwriters put it, we are our parents, but we just don't know it yet. And the way that we slowly figure it out is we start doing the things that they did and we start saying the things that they said, whether it's conscious or not. Before the industrial revolution, if we were all around, I could say, hey, hey, uh, John, hey, Mark, hey, what, Marcus, uh, are, what's your career? And 95 to 98% of you would be doing the same exact career as your dad did. He would teach you how to farm. If he was a farmer, he would teach you when to plant the seed and when to water it and how to irrigate it and how to harvest it. And he would, he would bring you up into the job that he had done his entire life. If your dad was a butcher, You'd become a butcher. 
If he was a preacher, you'd become a preacher. Some things never change. This is what happened in agrarian societies with, with little to no mobility. Whatever your dad did, you did as well. This is what Jesus' world looked like. You remember his father, Joseph, was a carpenter, and now Jesus is, is also a carpenter because you do what your dad does. This is really important for us to understand because the idea of sonship is wrapped up in this principles. Nowadays, sonship is all about genes and chromosomes and DNA. Take a test, find out who your dad is. But back then, sonship was all about action and vocation. It was all about what you did, what you said. Did what you do look like what your father did? We see a couple of examples of this throughout the Bible. Like in Exodus 4, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. They are to reflect my character. I'm holy. So they are to be holy. They're going to show the rest of the world what I'm like, and they're going to show the rest of the world what it's like to be a son in my family. In 1 Samuel 2, we meet these guys who are awful guys, and, and they're actually nicknamed the sons of Belial or the sons of worthlessness. And they were so bad that the only explanation was that they must have come from a worthless family. So they were sons of worthlessness. It was their identity. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus is, is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who make peace, for they will be called sons of God. And so the idea is that since God is the ultimate peacemaker, when, when we, we make peace here on earth, we are like him and thus prove that we belong to him. We do what he does and so we show our, our sonship. So in John 8, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are direct descendants of Abraham. If they could have done a DNA test right then and there, the results would have come back in and said, see, we knew it. Our father is Abraham. We weren't lying. But Jesus says in verse 39, if you were really Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. That's the real test of sonship. It's not your DNA. It's not your genetics. It's not your chromosome. If you were sons of Abraham, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. It's not talking about genetics, but what he's saying is that their actions had disassociated them from their bloodline. So then they go a step further. They don't like what Jesus is saying, so they're going to up the ante a little bit, and they say, well, actually, Abraham isn't, isn't really our father. We are sons of God himself. God is our father. To which Jesus replies, I don't think so. He says, I came from God. I was with God, and God knows me, and since you don't know me, you can't belong to God. You can't possibly be sons of God, because if you were you would be acting like him. And then, this is, this is where it gets really rough in verse 44. He says, let me tell you who your true dad is. You are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Oh, and by the way, you're actually in the process of plotting my murder right now. You think I don't know that. 
but I do. He was a liar from the beginning. Oh, by the way, you can't stop lying about me to everyone you meet and everywhere you go. Jesus is calling them out and he's saying, look, these things that the devil has done from the very beginning, like lying and murdering, you guys are doing. So who are you like? Abraham? God? No, not at all. You are like the devil. And since you are doing the things he did, that means you are proving that you belong to his family. If your father was Abraham, you would know me. You would recognize my voice. If your father was Abraham, you would love the truth and you would obey it. Because that's what he did. But here's the thing that you and I have to own and wrestle with today. And this is the fact that you and I are really no different from this group of people back then. You might say, well, Ben, I'm not plotting anyone's murder. Certainly not the murder of the son of God. You know, you might say, I'm not out you know, lying about Jesus and propagating some false religion or, or getting people to buy into some false gospel. Yeah, I, I might have a couple of pet sins, but they're not that big of a deal. So yeah, yeah, I get drunk on weekends, but, but who's that really hurting? Yeah, I, I know that God said that I should be controlled by his spirit and not any other substance, but Come on, isn't that a little extreme? Yeah, okay, I like to gossip. <laughs> but who does it? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Usually we end up like praying for the people we're gossiping about at the end, or at least we, we intend to, and sometimes we just forget. They're never going to hear what we say about them. It's never going to hurt their feelings. Well, why is that a big deal? Yeah, I really love God. This is, I think, the biggest one of our generation. I love God, and I really want to follow him except in this really small and insignificant matter of sex. Love Christianity, love Jesus, think he's like got a great vision of the good life, but I'm going to do my own sexual ethics over here. Porn's okay. Random hookups, no big deal, everyone does it. Sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend, what's the problem? We're going to get married anyways. I'm going to define this one for myself. If God really loved me, if God really cared about me, why would he want to mess with my sex life? 1 John 3, 8 through 10 says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Notice that there are no exemptions for pet sins. It's just anyone who practices sin. This doesn't mean anyone who sins. We all sin. I sin hundreds of times a day. You sin hundreds of times a day. Practicing sin is just this, it's an open and calloused uh, approach to, I'm going to sin and not feel bad about it at all, never confess it, never repent, and I'm just going to like 
follow Jesus over here, but in this thing, I'm just going to like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, this is going to be my pet. I'm just going to do this whenever I want, however I want. And no consequences, repercussions. That's what practicing sin looks like. It's a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Anyone who does that, it's not of God. See how it was so important for us to pray at the beginning of this? Because I know all of our defense mechanisms inside of us are just like flaring up right now. All of those walls are, are just like rising. If you could just imagine internally right now, you've got like an ear gate and, and, and your flesh is trying to like block your ears right now so that you can't hear this. If anyone practices sin, he's not of God. Anyone who hears the word of God, who comes face to face with the truth and covers their ears and goes and does what they want is not a son of God. It's the son of the devil. You and I need to hear this today because we live in a country full of cultural Christians who believe that we are sons of God, but who demonstrate the exact opposite with our actions. We are so much like that group of Jews that Jesus was talking to. They were banking their sonship on the faith of their parents. How many of us have said, well, I grew up in a Christian home, been a Christian my whole life. They were banking their sonship on their presence and their prayers in the synagogue. How many of us have said, well, I, I said a prayer when I was five. I show up to church whenever I can. I'm there. I must be a son of God. Jesus says, listen, it's not about your parents. It's not about your presence in the church. It's not even about your profession of faith. It's not even about that prayer you prayed 10 years ago. You prove that you are my sons by doing what I did. That's what the whole book of James is about. Secondly, we prove who our father is by loving what our father loves. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. Jesus is talking. What does the father love more than anything in the entire universe? His son. So in John, 1 John 2.23, John says, No one who denies the son has the father. But whoever confesses the son, acknowledges the son, has the father also. So we prove that we belong to the father by loving what the father loves. And specifically that means by loving his son, Jesus Christ, more than anything else in the whole world. Because that's what he loves more than anything else in the whole world. That's how we show that we belong to him. You could say that you love me and you would do anything for me. But if you didn't love my kids, I wouldn't believe you. You could say that you long to be in my presence. Not that any of you would ever say that. If you said that, that'd be pretty weird and I'd probably run away from you. But you could say that you long to be in my presence, but then every time my kids came around the corner, you rolled your eyes and you would show me that you actually didn't. 
You can't say that you love me and then treat the people I love the most with contempt. Can you? Same thing's true of my wife, my bride. You can't say that you love me, and, and we've talked about this when it comes to the church. You can't say that you love me and then hate my bride, right? No, you would love them and you would care for them as much as I would. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. There are some graces in which a man may be deficient and though he uh, may be worse for that deficiency, still he might be a Christian. But love to Jesus is an essential grace. It's a grace of the heart lying near the vitals of piety so that the lack of it is fatal. You must love Jesus Christ if you are indeed alive unto God. You see, it's possible to do all of the right things but still not be a son of God. It's possible to do everything that God does and at the same time not know him. This is important for you rule followers out there. I'm not a rule follower. Some of you are though. This is really important for you. You could follow every rule in the book and without love in your heart for Jesus Christ, be so far from God that when you see him one day, he's gonna say, get out of my presence, I never knew you. Doing the right thing with a begrudging attitude, doing the right thing out of a sense of duty and obligation rather than out of a sense of love and of gratitude and of of thankfulness, it's not doing the right thing at all. Because God cares just as much as our attitude as as he does about our action. He cares so much about our hearts. He doesn't want us to just do the right thing. He wants us to love him. So in my own home, I I teach my kids, Caroline and I, but we we teach our kids that obedience is two things. Obedience is doing what you're told the first time with a happy heart. (laughs) That second one is the trick because I could tell them to go clean their rooms and they could throw their head down like this and cry and whine and complain the entire time and pick up one little Lego at a time, drop it in the bin, pick up another one, curse me the whole time in their heart even though they don't know what a curse word is. Hopefully, they could carry out the task at hand and at the same time not be obeying because obedience isn't just about doing what you're told. It's about doing it with a heart of love. The Pharisees were the most obedient people in the world rule-wise. Nobody followed the law better than they did. And we're talking about over 600 laws. They added hundreds of laws to the 600 laws. They obeyed that thing to the letter. They were the holiest men on the planet. If there was a rule that they either invented it or they followed it like they invented it. And yet Jesus comes along and says, you're whitewashed tombs which means you look great on the outside, you follow all the rules on the outside, but on the inside, you are dead. It's possible to do all of the right things. It's possible to do everything that our father does and still not know him because we don't love what he loves. We don't love his son. 
So our obedience is useless without love. Guys, the Jews thought that they were sons of God, but the fact was that they couldn't recognize the true son of God, let alone love him. And that fact proved that they weren't sons of God. They didn't belong to him. Do you think the devil loves Christ? I mean, no, obviously not. What is his mission? His mission is to get us to love everything but Christ. How's he doing in your life? What do you love more than anything in the entire universe? How you answer that question will reveal whose son you are father you belong to. Some of you are convinced that you are a son of God because you believe in him. How many of you have ever said, I know I'm a Christian because I believe in God? Some of you are convinced that you are a son of God because you believe in God. But the test of sonship is not our belief in God. The test of sonship is our affection for him. James 2.19 says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe in that. And the demons tremble when they think about it. Belief is good, but belief without love is demonic. And it shows that we belong to a demonic family. This is heavy stuff, guys. This is really bad news, and I have some more bad news, but then we're going to get to some good news. First, some more bad news. Naturally, every single one of us are born haters of God. Every single one of us are born into the family of the enemy. Romans 3 says we don't have the ability to do anything good. We don't have the ability to live righteous lives and to to model uh, the example that Jesus gave us. We have no ability whatsoever. Matthew 3 tells us that unless an act of God uh, comes upon us and acts on us so that we become reborn, we'll never do anything good. We'll never love God the way that we should. Unless he acts on us, We are doomed in our sonship of the enemy. It's really bad news. But the good news is that God, who loved his son more than anything or anyone in the entire universe, sent him into the world that he knew hated him, that was currently opposed to him, his enemies. He sent his son to us, knowing that we would despise him so that he could make us sons of God. That's good news. He sent his son to act on us, to save us, to transform us so that we might be reborn, so that we might do the things that our father does and love the things that our father loves, specifically his son. I love how Paul put it in Ephesians 2. This is our story. This is the gospel. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were, sons of disobedience, naturally. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were children of wrath, even when we were sons of disobedience, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the good news of Christianity that every single one of us were sons of disobedience but because of Christ's sacrifice we have been made sons of God. Amen? So do you know who your father is? Again, that's the most important question. This passage says, if you are in Christ, if we are in Christ, his father is now ours. We belong to him. Romans 8 says that he's given us a spirit it's a guarantee, is a seal, and his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God. And now we don't go back to that yoke of slavery, of fear, but we have the spirit of sonship, and we cry out, Abba, Father. If you're in Christ, that's true of you. So prove it. Live like it. Walk with him. Do what he does. Love what he loves. If you aren't doing that and you don't love him, maybe Christ isn't in you. And we all have to evaluate that today. That's what we're asking the spirit to expose in us today. Do we have a cultural Christianity? Are we banking on the faith of our parents or a prayer that we said or something that we professed when we were a kid, but we're not following him, we're not doing what he did, we're not loving what he loves? If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that now, make today the day of turning. Make today the day that you repent, that you confess your need for him to save you, to transform you. Ephesians 2.10 says, you are now his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So guys, if he is your father, walk in him.